0: everyone. I'm Dr. Bruce Ellis Benson, the host of On Becoming. I don't often mention that I continue to be active in the academic world in terms of invitations to give talks. I was in Germany earlier this month to give a talk at a conference on the development of thinking around theological topics in continental philosophy, particularly French philosophy. This past week, I was part of a five-day workshop here in Edinburgh in which most of the participants work in analytic philosophy. The subject was Contradictory Theology in Its History. That title's not exactly self-explanatory, so let me try and give you a brief account uh, of what's at stake. The theology in this case is specifically Christian, and thus the workshop addressed two logical contradictions that at least appear to be part of Christian theology. The first of these is the Trinity. How is it possible to believe that God is one, which is monotheism, and still affirm the three persons of the Trinity? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The second possible contradiction is the incarnation. Put bluntly, the Christian tradition has usually affirmed that Jesus was fully human and fully divine. That means that Jesus is 100% human and 100% divine. As you can see, both of these involve what we might call counting problems. The Trinity asserts that there are three persons but one divine essence. How is that possible? As you can imagine, there have been many answers over the years. But the formulation is that while there are three distinct persons, they share the same divine essence. By the way, in case you're wondering how they came up with that formulation, the answer is by way of Aristotelian logic. In other words, the Christians used, so to speak, pagan logic in formulated the orthodox view. The Incarnation, at least on the Orthodox view, asserts a conception of Jesus Christ that gets us to 200%. Such a view was found in the Nicene Creed from 325, and then more fully articulated by the Council of Chalcedon in 451. To be honest, such logical contradictions is not an area in which I normally work. Back when I was teaching evangelical undergraduates, these kinds of questions would emerge in various courses. I think that students found it particularly surprising that whereas that they had this idea that somehow the Bible and Christian theology had just magically fallen from the sky, they were surprised to hear that it actually took many centuries for key doctrines of Christianity to be formulated. And of course, merely because these church councils assert this or that didn't necessarily mean that everybody agreed. Within Christianity today, there is still very much a lack of agreement on many things, though the Trinity and the Incarnation are taken to be central doctrines. I was asked to give a paper on the philosopher Soren Kierkegaard and to explain what he thought about these contradictions. In just a moment, I'm going to give you a version of that talk. However, just so you know in advance, the talk places these questions in the context of Kierkegaard's thought in general. In other words, if you've ever wanted to know about Kierkegaard, particularly what makes him an existentialist, then stay tuned. Before turning to that topic, though, I'd like to take a moment to remind everyone that the Gadamer course will be starting in October. That's really soon. So many people look back on college as the best four years of their life. And a lot of this has to do with the new sense of freedom, the friendships that you form, and the revelry on the weekends. One thing about the college experience that many people don't realize until after they've graduated is that it's a time when you're able to take four years of your life and just focus on learning. Whether you're taking Intro to Accounting or Taylor Swiftery History and Literature Through Taylor Swift, and as I've said before, that is a real course that was taught at UT Austin in 2022, it's a rare gift to be able to dedicate yourself so completely to topics that you're really interested in. In this spirit, I'd like to invite you back into the classroom to study hans georg a man that I knew both as a teacher and friend, and a philosopher that I'm certain will change the way you see the world. If scheduling is a concern for you, please know that we'll be putting up a poll for all who are interested so we can set up dates and times that work for everyone. If the cost of the course, 200 for those who don't subscribe on Patreon, 160 for anyone who does subscribe, please know that we are more than happy to work with you to make sure that resources don't present a barrier. For those of you that are interested, don't hesitate to get in touch with us with any questions. We can be reached by email at onbecomingpodcast@gmail.com at gmail.com or send us a DM on Twitter, now x, at onbecomingpod. As I've said before, if you find the podcast helpful to your own journey of becoming, consider following or subscribing to it. If you'd like to support us, please do so at patreon.com onbecomingpodcast, or PayPal at onbecomingpodcast at gmail.com. And now, for Kierkegaard. Here's how I began the presentation. Why would anyone care about a contradiction? There are lots of possible contradictions, and most of us have no interest in them. But why would a particular contradiction be important enough to hold a workshop on it? Well, Kierkegaard's answer to such a question does acknowledge that logic is an important part of this paradox. Logic isn't really the main thing at stake. It has to do with something existential. That is, something that bears upon our existence. Something that, if true, would challenge my, and your, and all of our ways of thinking and living. In what follows, I want to lay out the basic logic that drives Kierkegaard to address the paradoxical nature of the Incarnation. As far as I can tell, one can possibly read Kierkegaard as saying that this problem either is a paradox, which means that it can, at least to some extent, be explained, or it's just simply a contradiction. I was literally trained in the Steve Evans approach, Uh, That is, he was my teacher in college, and just so happens that he's one of the major figures in Kierkegaard studies. Uh, That's C. Stephen Evans. And he sees himself as following a line from David Swenson. He explicitly positions himself against Alistair Henné, a proponent of Kierkegaard, and Bren Bleschard, a critic of Kierkegaard. According to these writers, and now I'm quoting from uh, Evans, when Climacus asks for faith in the paradox, he is asking one to abandon the laws of logic and to embrace something which is known to be false, even impossible. As an example, consider what Herbert Gerlich has written in regard to Kierkegaard. The paradox is the ultimate challenge to the intellect for all attempts to understand it must conform to the laws of judgment and discourse, identity, contradiction, and the excluded middle. Yet the paradox violates these laws. Rationally, the statement, God-man, is a nonsensical statement. Likewise, Louis Poiman writes, again in reference to Kierkegaard, that the paradox is the uniquely absurd proposition that has the most objective evidence against it. As we will see, how one reads Kierkegaard is highly dependent upon how willing one might be to say that human reason is incapable of making an absolute judgment, in this case. Put otherwise. I think Kierkegaard's strategy is to say, yes, this paradox does go against reason, and that's a strike against human reason. But the extent to which this is true, whether for Kierkegaard or for any of us, is open to question. One might think that this matter could be decided on its own terms, but I think that Kierkegaard is going to say that such a matter only becomes important because it has to do with our very existence. Thus, from Kierkegaard's perspective, this problem cannot be addressed simply on its own, since it's wrapped up with a question like, what's the meaning of life? Or, to be much more Kierkegaardian, what's the meaning of my life? But otherwise, the logical problem is only a problem because of a deeper existential problem. It's widely known that Kierkegaard did much like Hegel. One reason for that is that Kierkegaard considers Hegel, or the Hegelian dialectic, to be driven by abstract thought, which Kierkegaard considers to be disconnected from our lives. Thus, Kierkegaard, in response, insists that we should begin with passion. You don't have to know all that much about philosophy to know that passion or the emotions or sentiments have usually been regarded as suspect or simply the source of error. Of course, from what we know by way of current neuroscience, it would seem that our moral and aesthetic judgments actually do come from our emotional mind, or what David Hume and Adam Smith would term sentiments. Of course, those sentiments can be revised by our rational brain, though we usually only do this when our judgments come into question, either by ourselves or by others. The point that our moral judgments arise from our emotions doesn't really prove anything, but it does show us that our emotions are also involved in our so-called rational decisions. In any case, Kierkegaard thinks that our emotions or passions work together with our reason. Kierkegaard rejects what he sees as the impersonal nature of the Hegelian project. Instead, Kierkegaard wishes to find some sort of philosophy which applied to him personally. And here's what he says. What I really need is to get clear about what I must do not what I must know, except insofar as knowledge must precede every act. What matters is to find a purpose, to see what it really is that God wills that I should do. The crucial thing is to find a truth which is truth for me, to find the idea for which I'm willing to live and die. So kierkegaard is not presenting any kind of subjective notion of truth in, well, that might be true or for you, but not true for me, but it is subjective in the sense that he's looking for truths that actually apply to his own life. In his book, well, it's a two-volume work, Either Or, Kierkegaard presents his own kind of dialectic, one that is highly personal in nature. Whether Kierkegaard should be read as giving us an account of how things go for everyone or whether his account is more personal on that is, I think, difficult to say. However, he does use a young character to argue for the aesthetic way of life. We'll get to that in just a moment. And an older, more mature person to argue for the ethical way of life. In any case, he starts with the aesthetic stage in which one is primarily concerned with the pleasures of life, the gratification of the senses. This stage represents something akin to hedonism, in which life is seen as meaningful to the extent that one is able to enjoy it. In this stage, The primary problems of life are boredom and pain. But it soon becomes obvious, at least if you're paying attention, that hedonism becomes something like a treadmill. One must continually find new pleasures because we tire of the old ones. By nature, pleasure is fleeting, and seeking for new thrills turns out to be a lot of work. On Kierkegaard's view, the esthete is not particularly concerned with morality or moral obligation, and thus leads an impoverished life, however, we could say, has a low level of existence. The problem with having pleasure as the main or sole goal in life is that one has no overriding purpose or telos. But the most important aspect here is that the pursuit of pleasure, by its own definition, turns out to lead to pain, and thus is self-defeating. In this respect, Kierkegaard's dialectic is very similar to the Hegelian dialectic, In that Hegel thinks that these various stages fail on their own terms. Thus, Kierkegaard thinks that there's a perceived need to change one's direction in life. Of course, it's not as if Kierkegaard thinks that there's something like an objective criterion which could decide the matter one way or the other. There is no measure or standard that one can use which somehow stands outside of either these two ways of life that he terms the ethical and the aesthetic. Yet Kierkegaard clearly thinks that living the ethical life is superior to living the aesthetic life from an existential point of view. Once pleasure is seen for what it is, and also for what it isn't, one changes one's passions. Instead of seeking pleasure, one becomes passionate for that which is morally right. It's in the ethical stage that one is finally able to become an individual. Kierkegaard's belief is that as long as one is in the aesthetic stage, one is simply following one's desires and passions. At the ethical stage, one is instead consciously willing to choose for oneself and thus establish an individual identity. Kierkegaard terms this inwardness. When we exist as individuals, we are consciously choosing to act in a particular manner. But the ethical life proves to be problematic on its own terms. The assumption of an ethical agent is that if we are expected to act in a certain way, that ideal should be attainable. Immanuel Kant, a philosopher before Kierkegaard, had said that if we ought to do something, that implies that we are able to, or ought implies can. Yet, trying to live the ethical life makes it clear that we are not capable of living up to this ideal. Thus, the ethical standpoint points to something which stands outside of it. While it's at this level of the ethical the possibility of an authentic selfhood and the goal of individual autonomy arise as goals, neither of these can be fulfilled at the ethical level. It is at this point that something called faith becomes important. Exactly how this level of faith relates to the ethical is not completely clear in Kierkegaard. For times he speaks as if the ethical is part of the religious, and at other times says that the religious is contained within the ethical. But that's not a problem that will worry us here. The difference between the ethical and a general sort of religiosity, what is termed religiousness A, boils down to this. Whereas the ethical person is only concerned for duties and responsibilities, the religious person has a concern for another being, God. In fact, the religious believer sees the two as going together. Ethics merely tells us what to do, but faith explains how doing the good is possible. Being a truly ethical person is not merely a matter of doing something, but having a relationship with God. In following God, we are called to ask ourselves hard questions and to become unified selves who act in consistent ways. The end or telos of religious belief is that we renounce the goals of this world, the finite goals, in favor of infinite goals. But you might ask, so what leads us to become religious? In following the ethical path, we come to see the need for something more, In fact, the more developed as a moral person one is, the more one sees the need for something beyond mere rules. The ethical duty expressed by moral rules and principles points to an absolute duty toward God, in comparison to which the pretty good sort of morality just doesn't measure up. By way of both and negative aspects of the ethical, we come to have a direct intuitive awareness of God's existence. Kirchhoff is not keen on the usual theistic proofs because they ignore the subjective reasoning which makes God's existence known to us. At the level of religiousness A, this is just kind of like basic, you know, ordinary sort of generic religion, we become aware of something higher and more ultimate than mere religious duty. This awareness causes guilt in us, and it also makes us realize that our relationship to God is inadequate. When that realization has hit home, then we're ready to move to the next stage. But here's the important part. The move from religiousness A to religiousness B is based on desperation. As with the previous stages, there is a kind of logic to such a move. But it is primarily an existential logic. It's only, thinks Kierkegaard, when we get to this place of angst or something like that, that we're willing to be confronted with the deeps and most difficult truths of human existence. For Kierkegaard, it is obvious that only Christianity provides the solution to this existential problem, precisely because it provides a way of breaking totally with the old order and being reborn, but in a way which is paradoxical. This particular paradox is that Christianity offers eternal happiness that is based on a moment in time. There's no logical contradiction here. Rather, there's something unexpected and strange. The wedding of the historical and the eternal in Christ. In other words, eternity and the hope of life to come for Kikor is based on this moment in time. Yet there is, of course, the actual paradox or contradiction involved in the existence of the one who's perfectly divine and perfectly human. Poyman's objection to the paradox is that it's not a paradox at all. It's just a simple contradiction. As he puts it, God and man are mutually exclusive genuses. Such a view is at least possible because Johannes Climachus does say, multiple times, that the Incarnation is a contradiction and that the incarnation is a self-contradiction. Interestingly enough, in a work that comes later, the concluding unscientific postscript, the term absurd is used to describe the paradox, but it's not used in an earlier text titled Philosophical Fragments. Here, though, I should say something about this name. Johannes Climacus is the name of a monk who wrote the text titled The Ladder of Divine Ascent. Kierkegaard is writing under the name of Climacus and Climacus wants to explore how thought can lead to spiritual perfection, since the name, of course, translates as John the Climber or John of the Ladder. Climacus is said to be the author of Philosophical Fragments, yet underneath that name and a brief description of the book, the person listed as responsible for publication is S. Kierkegaard. It should be noticed that Climacus is also the author of the concluding unscientific postscript, with S. Kierkegaard listed as editor. Climacus is certainly concerned with issues of faith and doubt, and thus cannot but confront the paradox. One of the problems with the interpretation of Climacus as affirming an actual logical contradiction is that when the terms contradiction and self-contradiction are employed by Kierkegaard, they usually do not refer to what we today would would constitute a logical contradiction in a formal sense. For instance, in the section titled The Dialectical, Climicus speaks of the contradictions that, one, that eternal happiness is based on a relationship to something else in time, two, that eternal happiness is related to something historical, and three, that the historical, the incarnation, is possible only by going against its nature which is eternal. It's only this last one that might be a contradiction in a logical sense. One of the difficulties here is that in Kierkegaard's time, followers of Hegel often use the term contradiction in a non-logical sense. It often means something like unexpected or incongruity or just weird. When Climacus does speak of actual contradictions, it's clear that he's upholding the so-called law of non-contradiction. If you've never heard of the law of non-contradiction, it's just simply the idea that something cannot be A and not A at the same time. For instance, he has a discussion in Fragments about the disciple at second hand. In other words, the difference between those people who followed Jesus and knew Jesus, who were disciples at first hand, and all of those Christians that come along after. His argument is that such a disciple does not receive her faith from the disciple at first hand, but directly from God. So here's a rather longish quotation. The meaninglessness that the later generation receives the condition of faith from the earlier generation, however, is unthinkable in a different sense that when we state that the fact, the incarnation, and the single individual's relation to the God are unthinkable. Our hypothetical assumption of the fact and the single individual's relation to the God contains no self-contradiction, and thus thought can become preoccupied with it as with the strangest possible thing. The meaningless consequence, however, contains a self-contradiction. It is not satisfied with positing something unreasonable, which is our hypothetical assumption, but within this unreasonableness it produces a self-contradiction that the god is the god for the contemporary, but the contemporary, in turn, is the god for the third. It's clear from this passage that Kierkegaard is arguing against such a belief by labeling it as a self-contradiction. So it would be difficult to say that he's willing to accept a rational contradiction. A passage from the postscript is apropos in this respect, for Kierkegaard is attempting to distinguish between nonsense and the incomprehensible. The believing Christian both has and uses his understanding but believes against the understanding in order to see to it that he believes against the understanding which one might fear because the understanding will penetratingly perceive that it is nonsense and hinder him in believing it. But he uses the understanding so much that through it he becomes aware of the incomprehensible and now, believing, he relates himself to it against the understanding this is not exactly the most crystal clear comment but what seems to be the case is that while the incomprehensible could possibly be believed according to kirkcore there's no way that nonsense could be affirmed climacus can be read as saying that those people who assume that the incarnation is a contradiction also assume that they know enough about divinity and humanity in order to make a clear distinction between them. It's this idea that Climacus is attempting to challenge. Thus his first line in Fragments is the question, how far does the truth admit of being learned? Climacus is attacking the Socratic idea that the truth is already within us and simply needs to be brought forth. His claim is exactly the contradictory, that we need divine revelation to have any knowledge of God. But this means that those who reject the paradox or the contradiction do not have the requisite understanding of God in order to conclude that the Incarnation is actually a formal, logical contradiction. It would only be possible to conclude that there is a contradiction if we have sufficient understanding of the nature of God and the nature of human beings. Climacus is saying we don't have that. Kierkegaard doesn't use the term... Adequatio intellectus ad re, but it's clear that he has something like that in mind. This is the medieval concept, adequatio intellectus ad re, the adequation of the mind to the thing. And of course, the greater the adequation, the more you can be said to be thinking the same thought. The alternative to the Socratic con- conception of how we know truth is the B hypothesis. Whereas the human teacher is just another human, if God is the teacher, then the learner learns something that she didn't already know. Put otherwise, human beings are incapable of knowing the truth of Christianity apart from being taught by God. But of course, we would only be possibly receptive to the B hypothesis, which we can call revelation, if we are already at the place where we are able to be critical of our own reason. From a non-Christian point of view, there may not be enough reason to accept the B-Hypothesis, namely that someone needs to tell you something that you didn't already know. At this point, I hope you can now see why we went on what might have seemed like a bit of a detour, the whole existentialist dialectic. It's only after seeing that the aesthetic stage doesn't work that the ethical project can't be completed, and that religiousness A is not sufficient, that we would even be willing to consider religiousness B, which is a relation with Christ. If you were to say, well, I'm quite happy with the aesthetic stage, then such a point is unlikely to come up, and if it did, it would be swiftly dismissed as irrelevant and contradictory. The offense of the Incarnation is that it tells us that we, human beings, do not have the conceptual equipment to make a judgment that the Incarnation is absurd or a formal contradiction. But Kierkegaard thinks the reason we're offended is because of sin. It is our sinfulness that makes thinking about God offensive, since we are not able to think properly about God or relate to God on our own. We want to think of ourselves as autonomous beings who are quite capable of thinking correctly. We are confident in our powers of reasoning. For Kierkegaard, the absolute paradox is the incarnation. The reason why this particular paradox is the ultimate paradox is that we can't make sense of it on our own. It is, and now I'm quoting from Kierkegaard, something that thought cannot think. But for Kierkegaard, the paradox is not simply about the Incarnation and its logic. It's also that the Incarnation is the supreme example of selfless love. But this is a problem because, as sinful beings, we have never experienced pure and selfless love. The offense, then, is that we are confronted with something that we are utterly incapable of understanding. Further, since we cannot make sense of such love, we would naturally reject it as something that couldn't possibly be true. This is not a logical contradiction per se, though we could think of it as logically problematic precisely because it doesn't make sense according to the kind of logic that we get from Socrates, which is that we already know the truth. It's within us and it just needs to be brought forward. Thus, we're now at the place where we still cannot understand the Incarnation, but at least we have an explanation for why this is the case. It doesn't make sense to us because of our sinfulness. That recognition, of course, means that human rationality must give up any kind of absolutist claims in regard to understanding the logic of the Incarnation. Kierkegaard describes this as getting to the place where, and now again I'm quoting, reason sets itself aside. In one of his journals, Kierkegaard writes, When the believer has faith, the absurd is not the absurd. But a good part of this understanding is not logical, but experiential. When we experience true love, we come to see that it's possible. Yet there clearly is something like an epistemic cost, a a kind of cost to our knowing and our abilities to know. In effect, Kikor sees reason as, among other things, engaged in an attempt to control or master whatever it discovers. In this sense, we could say that it is imperialistic. Yet the incarnation presents reason with something that it cannot understand, and thus it cannot master. While such mastery might be possible in regard to ordinary phenomena, reason is rendered powerless in the face of the incarnation. Of course, as we've seen, Kierkegaard speaks of more than one contradiction or paradox of the Incarnation. There is the one that primarily motivated the workshop, the problem of formal logical contradiction. But I think Kierkegaard's response to that particular paradox is, is that it's above reason rather than against reason. But that is the response of the person of faith. The person who does not have faith will likely see the Incarnation as simply against reason. Regarding the paradoxical selfless love of Christ, there isn't anything like a logical contradiction here. Yet Kierkegaard thinks that there's still something unreasonable about it, in the sense that it's the kind of love that we have never before experienced, and thus can't really comprehend it. Further, there's a conflict between the view that we already possess the truth and revelation which is, of course, the idea that we do not possess all truths, particularly that regarding the Incarnation. These conflicts are due to our sinfulness, according to Kierkegaard. That's why Kierkegaard thinks there are only two possible responses to the paradox. There's either faith, or there's offense. On Kierkegaard's read, you cannot remain indifferent. Yet such is only the case if one has already seen that the alternatives don't work. That's all for today's episode. I hope you found thinking about Kierkegaard helpful. One thing I greatly appreciate about Kierkegaard is that he's clearly interested in talking about things that really matter. His way of thinking about faith has had an enormous influence on me and my thinking. As always, if you're finding the podcast to be helpful in your own becoming, consider the, supporting the podcast at patreon.com slash podcast or through paypal.com or the Paypal app. The username for both is our email address, onbecomingpodcast at gmail.com. You can also just follow or click subscribe. I'm Dr. Bruce Ellis Benson, and I hope you'll join us for the next episode.